Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. A recent blog post in The Hill stated, reliable research on data and crime is more valuable than ever. With more and more headlines about spiking crime rates, the question has to be asked, does data back that up? Who better to answer that question than our guests who coordinate agencies to give us accurate assessment of this question? I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist Rosemary Pennington, Associate Professor and Area Coordinator of Journalism at Miami University. Our guests today are Nancy Levine and Alexis Piquero. Levine is the director of the National Institute of Justice. She is a nationally recognized criminal justice policy expert and former nonprofit executive whose expertise ranges from policing and corrections reform to reentry, criminal justice technologies, and evidence-based criminal justice practices. Picaro is the director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics. He leads the Bureau's activities on a range of data collection matters related to crime and justice. Picaro is a nationally and internationally recognized criminologist with more than 25 years of experience. So I guess stepping back a bit on the data interpretation stuff, can you sort of break down what your offices do? So um, the National Institute of Justice is the research, technology, and evaluation arm of the U.S. Department of Justice. We do most of our work through funding research grants to scholars throughout the country to pursue all manner of uh, research on a, a wide array of topics pertaining to crime and justice. Uh, we have a lot of work in forensics and investigative sciences and the development and application of new criminal justice technologies and a large body of work on in the social sciences around uh, corrections, policing, um, reentry, victimization, human trafficking, uh, courts, uh, the list goes on and on. It's a huge uh, undertaking and a tremendous honor to be leading this agency. The uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics um, was uh, enacted in 1979. And the purpose of BJS is to collect, analyze, and disseminate data on crime and justice issues broadly defined, including police, courts, and uh, the correctional system. And you know, our goal is to you know be as uh, non-political as possible when we release uh, statistical reports. We're one of 13 federal statistical agencies, so we have specific policies and directives that we must follow in line with guidelines from OMB and the Chief Statistician of the United States. Um, but for uh, as a criminologist by training who's been academic for 25 years, you know, have, having getting a call and then being appointed by President Biden to lead this agency, along with my dear friend and colleague Nancy at NIJ, we're sister brother agencies, uh, so to speak. Um, it's a it's a lifelong dream come true, and every day is uh, is a pleasure to do this. Um, this this piece on the Hill was about the need for for more crime data. And I wonder, we're in this moment where in the news, there's a lot of coverage of a spike in crime um, across the country. And I wonder, how do your agencies sort of track crime? What sort of things are you looking at to be able to evaluate whether a spike in crime is really happening, whether it's sort of this very sort of episodic thing, whether it's part of a trend? 
Yeah, so there's 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 lots there to unpack, um, and I think and 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 this day and age, I think there's there's lots of people who are putting together data on and commenting upon crime trends, whether nationally and or um, at the local level, which is very important. So let's take a, a, a step back and think about the, the last three years have been very difficult for all of our lives in many different kinds of ways. Um, we saw changes in crime, uh, for sure. We saw changes in education, for sure. We saw changes in, in visits to re regular doctors as well. So the last three years are somewhat of an aberration when we look at overall trends in crime. But when you look at, uh, I would say, let's, let's start in 1990, because the, the 1980s in the United States was a really high point and a deadly point when you think about uh, violence in the United States. The beginning of the 1990s, in the aggregate, when I think about the aggregate, we're looking at the, the United States as a whole. Crime has been going down and down and down and down. That is true whether or not you look at the official arrest data that the FBI publishes, or if you look at the victimization surveys that my agency, BGS, publishes with uh, what's called the National Crime Victimization Survey. They tell a very complementary picture in the aggregate. However, you have to unpack the aggregate and look at trends and changes over time and then at the micro level. So for example, let's use, um, let's use 2020 as a really good example of something all of us experienced and a lot of part of 2020 we, we want to obviously forget. Um, violence, especially community violence and shootings, increased soon after the pandemic lockdowns occurred in March and then accelerated throughout the summer, including after um, George Floyd's killing and the protests that happened after that. And it was pretty sustained into 2021. Some cities saw it much larger than other cities. Other cities didn't see it at all. And some cities into 2021 went down, others stayed up. But even if you look at a city, you have to look at within a city because we know that crime, especially violent crime, is concentrated in very small areas, sometimes even blocks, and, and predominantly by certain kinds of people who will frequent a certain area for, for lots of different kinds of reasons. That's not a very satisfying answer for people, but anytime you're studying social phenomenon, there's never a very satisfying answer for people to have because there's ebbs and flows and there's uniqueness. Like during the pandemic, property crimes went down at the early stages of the pandemic because people were home, they weren't out, and other crimes increased. Just like we know that alcohol sales blossomed during the pandemic, especially during the lockdowns. So we have to really take a real fine look at this. And the last analogy I'll make here, and I'll turn it over to Nancy, is when you think about a, a player's batting average over 180 baseball games, you'll get an average of whatever that number is. But some weeks, the batter could be doing really, really good. And some weeks, the batter may not hit a ball at all. So you, you know the aggregate tells you over a span of time, but it doesn't tell you week by week by week. And crime is a local phenomenon and is a time-centered phenomenon. Okay. You stole my thunder. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> because you know that I like to talk about micro-geographies in crime. And that dates back to when I worked at NIJ some 20 years ago and helped establish what was then known as the Crime Mapping Research Center. So I have... Um, a long interest in the relationship between crime and space and a, a fierce <laughs> uh, understanding and commitment to digging down as low as we can go to understand those community contexts, right? Because in my mind, yes, it's important to know whether national crime trends are up or down, 
it takes some time to know that definitively. That's why we have BJS because they do such a good job of ensuring that the data we're collecting is reliable and accurate. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether those trends are up and down if I'm living in a neighborhood where my neighborhood is not safe and feels less safe. And I don't feel comfortable letting my kid walk the two blocks to the corner store. And the reason why that local context is so important is because the solutions come from those local dynamics. So really looking local helps us understand why one street segment might be uh, more at risk of violent crime than another. What are the other factors that are going on there? There's some really interesting research around vacant lots as um, real uh, magnets for violent crime. Uh, if you clean and green those lots, you can reduce violent crime. Uh, so really understanding those contexts like, can help us not only develop more effective solutions, but maybe also solutions that are not the traditional responses, like, oh, we'll just send more law enforcement there. Well, to do what? Well, maybe to figure out what else is going on, maybe to co-create safety in partnership with community members who live there. You know, as, as you're talking about this, the, the, the thing that I, I find is always the tension is this tension between the simplistic soundbite and the new the nuanced realist the re realistic description of a situation, and, and you know part of what we're doing on stats and stories is we're thinking about you know the statistics behind stories and stories behind the statistics. And as as you think about conveying and communicating the work that you do, how, what are some of the ways that you you kind of explore and and present the nuance? How do you how do you capture that? And how do you get that across? Given that people want that you know two hundred eighty character tweet. I think so. One of the things that's, that's so great about Nancy and myself leading these agencies is, you know, Nancy and I have historically in our professional careers been very centered on trying to communicate the data to the public in a way that not only they can understand, which is very important, but also that they find useful in, in decision making, whatever decision they end up making. Right? We want them. We want science to be at the table. And so I, I, I try to communicate that in, in three different ways. I'll just, I'll just put them out very quickly. You know, many years ago, I was, I was on a National Academy of Science panel looking at crime statistics. And one day out of nowhere, um, I said, different people need different data in different ways for different reasons. So if I'm talking to my mom, she's not gonna know anything about Greek equations or likelihood functions or anything like that because it, it doesn't matter to her. So I need to be able to translate our research into a way that's relevant for her. When I'm talking to Nancy, we can geek out a little bit more. And so there's different ways of communicating that to people. So we have to present our work in ways that people find it of interest. And when I came to BJS, you know, BJS historically has written 50 page reports that, you know, people will read the first sentence and the, and the title and be done. And that's cool because the academics and the researchers will like it, but the, but the real world won't. So immediately I did three things. I created one page reports where you look at a title and you see a figure and you know the answer to the question. The second thing I did is we launched a whole series on infographics because that's the way when people are staring at their phone, they have 10 seconds to pay attention to something and walk away because that's the way the world is. So we have to meet the world where they're at. The third thing I will say is that you have to be able to, when you communicate to people, you have to tell them why this is relevant for them, not why it may matter in Kansas City, but why it matters for you right here, right now. And the last thing I'll say, and I, I, I feel very strongly about this, um, 
and I'll, I'll ask, you know, Rosemary and Charles, you, you this question. Do you want to fly a plane today that was built in 1930? No. Well, we have been collecting crime data since the same, for the same way since about that time. So we need to be flying really new Airbuses and Boeings and not the 1930 version of those planes. So we need to not only improve our data collection and modernize our data collection, but produce that data collection in a way that it helps people to understand the nuance, but also how it might be relevant for them in their decision-making. Nancy? Well said, Alex, but you didn't mention anything about tweeting. No, that's you. So what's up with that? As a handoff, back to you. <laughs> so story, as the story goes, so Alex and I, we were in the same PhD cohort. Um, we, we can disagree about which school is better. But we go way back and um, have always been aware of each other and each other's work, even though Alex took uh, an academic route and I ended up um, first at NIJ and then at the Urban Institute for almost two decades for returning to NIJ and doing a few other things in between. Um, but we've always like had an affinity for each other's perspectives on why we're in this work, right? And yes, we geek out on research. I mean, of course we do, but that it's not research for research's sake. It's research and data to generate findings that can improve the world, right? promote better safety, promote better justice, more equitable justice system outcomes. And so we would meet every year or so at some convenings that was the handful of criminologists who cared about dealing with the media. <laughs> and it really was a handful. And then, so one meeting, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe I said, Alex, why aren't you on Twitter? And he's like, yeah, I should probably be on Twitter. And I'm like, you really, really should. Here's what you do. And uh, so I gave him some tips, and within a year, he had more followers than I did. Oh, I did. man. I <laughs> know. Uh, <laughs> I would say you both are, the way you talk about this, you think like journalists. I'm like, what Alex said about like how you think yeah. about data, I was like, that's what I tell my journalism students all the time about how to make sense of a story. Yeah. And and I tell my mm -hmm. the stat students, I'm like, yeah, the stat students need to know that too. They need to think about what's what's mm -hmm. impacting. I I do have a, a just a you you you've had this question this this statement about the importance of modernizing data collection. What would what are uh, just a couple of things that would reflect that modernization of data collection, and and why would that add value to the the yeah, so. so so that's a great point. I, I'll make this one extremely timely. Nancy and I have the, um, the once in a lifetime experience of uh, being involved in writing a report to President Biden on the state of policing statistics in the US. So it's, it's a real, it's a monumental occurrence for our professional careers. And what we mean by modernizing is when people think about police, they think about arrests and use of force, period. Police do so much else that we don't track on a really good basis. How many calls for service they have? How many stops they do? How many frisks they do? How many seizures they do? How many complaints do? How many commendations do they get for the good work that they do? All of these other things about, we think about modernization, you know, it's the, it's the flying the plane from the 20s and flying the plane from 2023. They're quicker, they're more efficient, they burn less fuel. They're just built for today. So we need to up our game with respect to how we collect data and then how we disseminate that data and then how we communicate 
that data to people. And I think that, you know, with Nancy and I, you know, one of the things that's really good about our ability to do this is our, our accessibility is our best availability. And so we will talk, I, I will play to a, a club of five people and we'll go play to an arena of 18,000 and a football stadium of 60,000 because we were passionate about the work we do, but more importantly, about the need for people to understand the value of both research as well as data to inform sound policy, because we're all trying to improve the human condition. That's what we're trying to do every single day of our lives. If I can just pick up on that question about how to modernize uh, data collection. One thing we're wrestling with at NIJ, and this actually predates my arrival here, I've been kind of obsessed for some time with getting more authentic measures of community sentiment as it pertains to how they're policed, what they think about police, and how police engage with them, right? Because what we know is that traditional methods are underrepresenting people that I would argue we care most about in this context. So as people residing in the, the most under-resourced and heavily policed highest crime communities who are unlikely to participate in traditional surveys, um, online surveys, uh, you know, certainly paper and pencil. And so they're underrepresented. And so we're interested in also modernizing the way we approach surveying people at these very local levels who are often reluctant to take part in surveys. It's a, it's a unique challenge. It's one that um, Alex's staff and um, folks at NIJ have partnered on to kind of sort through like, what are the possibilities? How can we crack this nut? And I think it's really important that we pursue those avenues of research as well. So I, just one more thing to add to that point is, you know, when people think about data, you know, everybody thinks about an Excel file and there's rows and columns, but you know what? Every one of those rows is a human being. And we need to, we need to always bear in mind that that interviewing, that, that human being has a context, they have a life course and they have mm -hmm. decisions, some of which they can control, many of which they, they cannot control. So we have to always bear in mind that data are good, but also the stories behind those data points are equally as important. And sometimes even more important that you can't get into those columns. That's right. In fact, that's one of my priorities as NIJ director is uh, to encourage more research that uh, uses mixed methods or what I call numbers plus narrative. Well, great. Thank you so thank much. You, that's a you. beautiful way to end this episode of yeah. Stats and Stories. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you so much. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.